Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Um, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us this morning from wherever you are joining with work, for us at, at, with worship this morning at First Baptist. So thank you for being online this morning. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Amos. And do not be ashamed to use the table of contents to get there um, because some of these books that we're looking at are really small and they're kind of right at the end of the Old Testament. And so find your way to Amos. And this morning we're going to be looking in chapter 5 as kind of a diving board into a lot of Amos. So we're going to be looking at kind of just a bird's eye view of the book of Amos and what this prophecy is all about. But to kind of set the stage, I want to share a little bit about an experience that I had about 20 years ago when I was doing summer missions in the country of Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso is a small country in Africa, in West Africa. And I was there with a team of about 50 other college students for 10 weeks over one summer. And so while we were there, we lived mainly in very rural areas. And so we were way out in the bush and we would go for two weeks at a time. And then we'd come back for a few days and kind of restock our, our items that we needed and get medicine if we were sick and things like that. And then we go back out for another two weeks. And so during that time, we were working with the Moranse people group. And the Moranse were the primary people group that lived in this area. But as we were there, we, we began to see a, a different people group that dressed differently. They had different markings. They did a lot of, of tattooing kind of work on their faces and stuff. And it was very beautiful, wore very large earrings. The women did, and the, and the men wore different garments and things. But they were always with the animals. And as so we started to learn more and more about the culture that we were in. We learned that these were the Fulani people group. And the Fulanis were, were more nomadic. In fact, they didn't really have their own land. They were present in multiple countries and they were shepherds. They were kind of nomads. And so they were kind of, if, if, if I'm being honest, an annoyance to the people because they would come in and their animals would eat, you know, these people's grass and, and would be kind of drinking their water and things like that. So they were kind of a nuisance. So they were always on the move because they would kind of overstay their welcome at times. But yet this people group kept drawing me. And so at one of the villages we ended up, there was one of the, the Fulani families that was there. The, the mother had just given birth to twins. The twins were not doing well. And so she was trying to nourish them. And the dad would leave each day with a group of sheep and then with a cow and a calf. And so a heifer and a calf. And they would go out and they would try to find pasture in this very difficult region. And then they would come back at night. And I remember watching one night as, as they came back in that the, the flying shepherd tied the calf to a tree. And I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, I don't think that's really the best decision because they, you know, wherever the, the mother goes is where the calf is going to go. So if the mother wanders off the calf, you're just going to have a calf rather than the mother. And so I went to bed that night and got up the next morning, was in God's word. And I happened to be in first Samuel chapter six. And as I'm reading in first Samuel chapter six, this is a story where the Ark of the Covenant has been taken away from Israel and brought into another land. And now they're being plagued. They're, they're having tumors grow on them and things. I mean, it's all this stuff. And they kind of devised this plan that, you know what, to see if it's that this Ark of the Covenant, this thing we've taken from somebody else is the problem. Let's get a calf are two heifers that have calves and tie up their calves and then yoke them with this thing. And if they leave their babies, then we know that this is the problem. Now, that's kind of the essence of the passage. So I'm sitting there looking at the Bible and then I look up at the tree where the calf is still tied. And I was like, this shepherd is brilliant. He, he, without probably reading the Bible, he just knows if you tie up the calf, 
the mama's not going to leave. And it's a lot easier to tie up a calf than, than a full-grown cow. And so I then looked back down at the scriptures and I kept reading, but with this new insight that this city boy from Baton Rouge would have never perceived had I not been out there. But you know, there's a lot that we can learn from shepherds. In fact, shepherds are the ones often used in the scriptures to illustrate some of the most powerful principles about who God is and how it is that he relates to us as sheep, as the sheep of his pasture. I mean, the favorite psalm, the one that is read at every funeral, the one that is read in hospital room after hospital room after hospital room is this, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. We, we, we read these passages about the Lord being our shepherd. And then we turn over to John chapter 10 and we get in and, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then that's exactly what we see happen. And so today, as we turn our attention to Amos, a shepherd from this small area called Tekoa that's in the region of Judah, we see that he's now leaving his shepherd land and going up to Israel into the city. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever had that experience where somebody came in from the outside, from a context not like yours, that offered you some advice? How'd you do? How'd you handle it when somebody came into your arena and told you some things that needed to change, that, that needed to be better? What'd you do? Chances are you said, well, you don't understand. You, you don't get my context. You don't understand what it's like to, to be in my profession or to live in the city when you're from the country or, or, or you, just, you just don't understand. Well, that's exactly what the people were saying to Amos in his day. You don't get it. You don't understand. In fact, why don't you go back to the country? That's what they're saying to him. But he persists in this message because this is not Amos's commentary on what's going on in Israel. This is the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, the Lord who is speaking to his sheep. Now, to get the context before I have you stand for the reading of God's word, things were good in at least a couple of aspects. One aspect that things were good is Israel in this day, the, the, the kingdom is now split. There's a southern kingdom called Judah and a northern kingdom called Israel. And Israel has a king and he's a powerful king, but he is a dirty king. He's wicked. His name is Jeroboam II, but during his reign, Israel has doubled its land mass. So people are looking at it and they're like, Man, this, he may not be the best guy. Not, I don't want my, my sons to grow up to be, a, be like him, but man, military might, it's got it going on. He, he's expanding the kingdom. It's getting bigger. And, you know, who can complain about that, right? You know, like we've got military might. So they're looking at this. In addition, Jeroboam's pretty financially savvy, at least in the city, that is. In the, in, the, in the more rural environments, the shepherds and others are starving to death. They're dying in the fields. But in the city, man, they've got stuff to eat. The arts are good. They're, they're inventing new instruments, it says in Amos. I mean, like, in the city, it's like, things are really great. Jeroboam may not be the best guy in the world, but, I mean, who can complain Money's good. 
we're growing, things are good. Except things weren't good. Things were really bad, actually. But isn't that the contrast that we often find ourselves in? Of how it can feel in one moment like things are so good, but yet according to the standard of the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of armies, things aren't so good. You see, the people in Amos's day, they were living life and things were pretty good, but yet they were still kind of lamenting and saying, you know, woo, things are bad. Things are bad out there. And what we need is the day of the Lord. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? That's what they were saying to each other. We just need the Lord to come. We need the Messiah to come and be on his throne, and then we will be good. I mean, we got the money, we got the wealth, but we just need the king. We're ready for the day of the Lord. And it's with that I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word from Amos chapter 5, understanding that the context is it was the best of times, but the real reality is it was the worst of times. And that the people thought, man, we're just ready for the Lord. We're just ready for him to come and clean up because everything else is ready. And beginning in chapter 5, in verse 18, hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and he rests his hand against the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Succoth for your king and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name, and he has spoken. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. God, this passage is, is 2,700 years old. But Lord, we know that it is timely because you speak. You are the God who speaks. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would speak through your living word by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring us into conformity with your word and to form us into the likeness of Christ. Do these things, Lord, we pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What do shepherds know? You see, that's kind of the, the overarching reality for Israel in this day when Amos comes waltzing into town from an obscure small village in Judah 
as they're looking at him and looking at each other and being, what a, what a shepherd's know. What a shepherd's know. Well, as we walk through this, I want to couch things in terms of what shepherds know and what it is that sheep need to be aware of. The first thing that we see revealed in this passage is that shepherds know the roar of a lion means danger. The roar of the lion means danger. I want you to look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 2. It says, he said, the Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. Then turn over to chapter 3, verse 8. And this is the end of this little section right here. He says, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? You see, God's word is likened in this passage of confrontation as that of a roaring lion. Now, some people, us here in New Orleans, you might go over to the Audubon Zoo and hear a roaring lion and then go toward it to say, oh, the lion. Let's go see this thing and go toward the lion. But if you're a shepherd in a pasture and you hear the roaring of a lion, you know that this is a moment to prepare for battle. This is a moment to protect the sheep. And the reason that God is roaring in this passage is because of the sin of the nations, because of the sin of Judah, because of the sin of Israel. But notice how it proceeds, where the passage begins. It starts off in chapter 1, verse 3, in these statements that kind of follow a cadence. And so get the picture that Amos is communicating in a way that would have grabbed the hearer and actually would have been engaging to them because they too were thinking, just like Amos is putting forward, man, these nations around us, huh, and because of the nations around them and the, the failing morality around them and the violence around them and all of these things, they were saying, boy, what we need is the day of the Lord. We need the Lord to come and to deal with all of this violence and difficulty and immorality around us. The way he says it, this is verse 3. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three crimes, even four, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. And then he says, therefore, I will send fire against Hazel's palace and, and it will consume Benadad's citadels. Notice what God says right here is he says, yes, there is sin. There is sin in these places and I am going to bring vengeance. Isn't that good to know that we serve a just God? We serve a just God. I mean, in fact, that's what the passage just called for is let justice flow. So justice and God are not at odds. In a day and age when we're crying out for justice, we should, we should acknowledge that that should be for us a call out to the Lord. God, we need you. We need true justice. Not unbalanced scales of basically vengeance against one from the other, but we need true justice and justice belongs to the Lord. 
He goes on in this passage, verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing it over to Edom. Verse 9, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three crimes, even for four, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom and broke a treaty of brotherhood. Verse 11, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion, his anger toward him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. Verse 13, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even for four, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Notice that what's being done is he is gathering in an audience. These are people that will have agreed so far with everything he has said. Yes, yes, yes. They need to come down. They need to come down. But then notice the turn right here. In verse 4, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even for four because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statute to this point, they would have stood up and said, amen, because they're Israelites. They're looking down. They're looking down at the southern kingdom, looking down at them as the ones who have departed who are not true Israel. This is the point where it would have really crescendoed and they would have been like, now this guy's preaching. This guy's bringing it. That's right, Judah has broken the word of the Lord. And then right at that moment when people are getting on their feet and they're saying, amen. You then get to verse 6. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even for four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. Yet I destroyed the Ammonite of Israel. The Amorite of Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was like he was as sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. Look, I'm about to crush you in your place as, wagon, as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself. And the one riding on horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you with, for all of your iniquities. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Does a bird land in a trap on the ground 
if there is no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it has been caught by nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in the city, aren't people afraid? If disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who will not prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Assemble the mountains of Samaria and see the great turmoil in the city and the acts of oppression within it. The people are incapable of doing right. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who have stored up violence and destruction in their citadels. Therefore, the Lord God says an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. The Lord says, as a shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob, that is Israel, this is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel on the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through the breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Hermon. This is the Lord's declaration. Come to Bethel and, re and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and loudly proclaim your freewill offerings for that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord. As still as this room is right now, it was still in their day. Because all of a sudden, in a span that doubles what he was devoting, triples what he was devoting to the problems in the nations around Israel, he then brings forth this incredible list of offenses that Israel is committing. That he is keenly aware, God Almighty, of what is going on in their house. And that that is of greater offense to him because it was to them that he had set apart. It was them that were supposed to manifest his justice and his righteousness. And yet the greatest injustice was that these people of justice, these people of God, were turning a blind eye to what was needed in their land. They were oppressing the poor. They were subverting justice. They were living in luxury and ease. And God is familiar with it and he confronts them. The lion was roaring. He was roaring loudly, but they thought it was only a threat to those around them, not realizing that God was roaring his word as a warning to them in the church because they thought they were ready for the day of the Lord. And I think if I did a quick poll right here and said, are you ready for the day of the Lord? The majority in this room would say, we're ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for the day of the Lord. God's word calls to account your actions. What you are doing with this life right now as evidence of whether you are truly ready or you are not. You say, well, 
Pastor, I prayed a prayer when I was a child. Many prayers were prayed in their day. They love to bring the sacrifice. They love to go through the motions on a Sunday morning. They had no problem with that. It was when they left their temple. It was when they left that gathering and then went out in the city that they stopped worshiping. And they began offending God and offending him. And for years and years and years this went on. And now the lion was roaring and was speaking his word of warning. But would they listen? You see, the shepherd knew that you listened to the roar of a lion, but the sheep, for some reason, were turning a deaf ear. Second, what we see is this. Shepherds know that you wound a sheep to save a sheep. Shepherds know that you wound a sheep to save a sheep. You see, it's a practice among shepherds, even to this day, that when you have a sheep that's prone to wandering, you break its legs, and then you carry it, and you train it to be dependent on you, so that then as that break heals, that sheep has been inclined to be with the shepherd and to remain in the flock. You don't wound the sheep just in your anger. You wound the sheep to bring it back. And that's exactly what God is doing in his word. You see, when we pick up in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. Do you see what he's saying? I was wounding you with hunger that you might return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while another field had no rain and withered. Two or three cities staggered to one another for city, to, to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. He sent droughts and thirst upon his people. He was wounding them that they might come back and return to him, but they did not return. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Pestilence. They, they, they were just missing it, sign after sign after sign. God was speaking to them. Hunger, thirst, pestilence, plagues, and total destruction. Verse 11, it goes all the way down. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. I mean, a burning stick out of the fire is a stick that's almost consumed, almost gone. God is letting them go through these incredible difficulties that they might return to him. Now, we can make immediate personal application of this, that maybe in your own life right now, you're looking, you're like, man, life is so hard. Life's hard. And I'm going through these difficulties. Is a return to God what's needed most in your life? Not just a better job, not just for your, your spouse to stop being nagging, not for your kids to just quit doing dumb things. I mean, like there's all these things that I hear from people of what they're convinced that if just this would happen, if just this one thing would happen, my world would be as it should be. Is it possible that in the same way that God was sending hunger and thirst and pestilence and death itself, 
in order that people would return to him, that in your life right now, God is screaming, come back, come back, come back to me. The reason that these difficulties are coming is not because I'm against you, but because I'm for you. I'm bringing you back. But then corporately, because that's what this word is being spoken to, is to the house of Israel, to the people of God. Not just one person individually, but to all of us. You know, we look and in every generation, we identify all of these difficulties that we go through. And I can safely say that in every generation, there needs to be a comeback moment to God. Because we drift. We like sheep are prone to wonder. And we even sing songs about this tendency within us. And so First Baptist New Orleans, there's no doubt in my mind that as we look back over the, the last year of the difficulties that we've experienced, not only culturally outside when we leave this place, but then within the body, and not just at First Baptist New Orleans, but across sister churches as well. These difficulties have an intent from God Almighty who is for us, and that is that we would return to him. So may, may his word have that effect on us that we would return to him. Because as shepherds know, and as the great shepherd has demonstrated, you wound a sheep to save a sheep. But then finally what we see is this, that shepherds know sheep, underestimate real danger. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will that day be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home. He rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. In other words, we think that what we're looking forward to is this final rescue, that things are getting kind of better and better and we're avoiding the bad and then all of a sudden we'll come in and there'll be this big rescue. But he's warning them that that's really not the case, that God is going to come in as a just judge to vindicate the wicked. And so the question always before them was, am I wicked or am I righteous? And our lives are supposed to speak that message. But notice what he says to them. He says, they lie on beds, chapter 6, verse 4, inlaid with ivory, sprawled on their couches, and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp. They invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. You see, they didn't realize that it was their ease. I mean, get the mental picture here. They're, they're on beds inlaid with ivory. They're sprawled out on their couches. I mean, they're just passing the days in a spa-like kind of environment. They're going through and, oh, what should we eat tonight? Well, we had steak last night. Why don't we do veal this evening? And so they're going on and on about what they're going to eat. And they're going to say, I'm tired of hearing 
the mandolin. Why don't we invent something else? Something that might sound a little bit, you know, high string, you know, and they, they invent the violin. And so they start to have string quartets and stuff. And it's, oh, isn't this nice? And they are just fancying themselves with their eating, fancying themselves with where they sit and lounge and fancying themselves with their music and all of these things. And God is confronting them and not because music is bad and not because cushions are bad, but because a cush life is a danger. And the sheep of Israel, the people of God did not realize that it is easy to get sucked into that and then to stop caring How did it get this way? How did we get here? Who paid the price so that I could have affluence? Because you see, in their day, there were fields all around Bethel full of starving to death families who were called shepherds. And so it's no coincidence in my mind that God sent a shepherd from Judah who probably had relationship with some of the the shepherds or maybe had heard about what was going on among the shepherds to then go into this developed area, these developed people, these kind of a higher class of, of folks to bring this message from the Lord, a message that they said, go away, you shepherd. The reality for the people of God is that they fail to realize some of the things that could grip them and become a love in their life. You see, it's a, there's a reason that the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, warned the sheep that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I mean, he, he warned us about these things. And it's not because money inherently is bad. It doesn't say money is the problem. It says the love of it. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we, we need to be aware that even in our day, that we can become trapped and pulled into these things. The good shepherd, the good shepherd leads his sheep. But here's what I know today and what I want to encourage you with is that the shepherd is faithful to the people of God. You see, this shepherd was ultimately pointing to a future shepherd who would come and would shepherd the people of God. And the way that he would do it is this shepherd would come and lay down his life for the sheep. In fact, even in a way that's kind of a foreshadowing approach, we see here in this passage, God saying that in chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget all their deeds. In other words, All of the sin that they've committed has stacked up. God has a record of it. He's not just sweeping it under the rug and saying, you know what, let's just let bygones be bygones. He is keeping an account of all of these things and saying that there will come a day where all sin is dealt with. And as he's pointing to this future day of justice and of judgment and of the coming of the Messiah, He then speaks in verse 9 and he says, And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, I will darken the land in the daytime. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Matthew, in chapter 27 of his gospel, notes with specificity that at noon the sun went down when Jesus Christ was on the cross. And that darkness covered the land for three hours. You see, this shepherd was ultimately pointing to another shepherd that would come one day 
One who following verse 11, look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord that God would finally send the shepherd who was the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he became one of us. And he died on the cross for us in order to save the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. We have all that we need. You see, the passage points forward to a time when there would be a day of restoration. In chapter 9, verse 11, In that day I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. He will do this. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he did. Here at First Baptist, a tool that we have learned to use in order to communicate and to be reminded each week of the gospel is something called the three circles. And in the first circle, we're reminded of, of brokenness. You see, brokenness is what's described here in this book in large measure. I think it's important for us to remember that brokenness is not just something on the outside all around us, but there is brokenness within us. That's what God was confronting, is that in each one of us, there are things that are not as they should be things that are not in accordance with God's word, but that was not his design. God's design included justice. God's design included a right relationship with him and a right relationship with one another. A beautiful marriage, provision in a garden, you name it, things were good. In fact, God said it is very good. But sin entered into the world through the very first two people. And sin is this. God says, this is the way, walk in it. And we say, no, I think I'm going to go this way and do what I want to do. And every one of us have done exactly that. We have gone our own way. That was God's way. We went our way. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Don't miss it. God said, I am going to keep a record of every wrong you have committed. And that's exactly what God has done for you individually as well. He knows every wrong you have committed. Every wrong. Every wrong that you have thought, every wrong you have done. He knows it all. And the Bible says that he took that wrong that list, that record of debt that you owed God, he nailed it to the cross. You see, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who was that shepherd that was foretold years ago by the prophets that would come and live among us. He would be sinless. But at the end of that sinless life, he died on the cross for you and me. That's when the, the sun was darkened at noon. That was the day that our records were nailed to the cross, paid in full, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus died. You see, that's how God can be just. Our sin has been paid in full. But God is also gracious and merciful. 
And so he, in grace, has allowed Jesus to pay the price for your sin and mine and has now given us the clean debt. There's no debt. Clean bill of right and righteousness with God in order to experience freedom, in order to experience a debt-free life where we no longer owe God but have been forgiven by him because of Christ. Jesus was buried, it was finished, and then resurrected because he is alive. And the Bible teaches that all who trust in Jesus for salvation, who trust that Jesus paid my debt, that's the only way that I can be forgiven. That's the only way that I can know the justice of God is by trusting in the death of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross for my sins. That by believing in faith, we are saved. It's a gift of grace. And then the Bible teaches this amazing reality that not just only you're forgiven, then you're filled with the Holy Spirit. God giving you himself to come and shepherd you from within, to comfort you from within, to lead you by green pastures from within, to lead you by still waters within, to comfort and restore your soul within. This is what he does by his Holy Spirit who comes and indwells us. The old is gone, the new is coming. We begin to grow into this beautiful relationship that God has given us in Christ. And so let me ask you, who is shepherding you right now? Are you shepherding yourself? Are you trying to, to tend yourself? Hear the word of the shepherd. Hear the word of the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Give your life to the good shepherd so that then you can say with all the saved, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that in this moment, it would be a moment of fresh surrender for the saints, for those who have already professed faith in Jesus Christ to give their lives again to the good shepherd, to follow him, to recognize maybe that those wounds that they thought meant that you were against them have actually been to save them and bring them back. Lord, to, to recognize that the things that they maybe thought were so good were actually a danger and that you're trying to rescue them from a love of material things into a life of true freedom, of true service, of, of truly following the shepherd. So Lord, please, in this moment, God, if there is one, we know that in heaven there is great rejoicing when just one, one sheep is found, I pray for the one in this room right now, who right now is experiencing the hand of the shepherd on them, calling them to come and follow him, that they would give it all to Jesus. If that's you, in your heart, just say, I give you everything. Jesus, I give you everything. I want you to shepherd my soul. Just cry out to him, ask him to forgive you, and he will. There's nothing that he will not forgive you of. Give your life to the good shepherd in this moment, trusting him and giving him everything and he will lead you forever. Let's all stand. This is a moment of response, of singing and worshiping. But if you would like to be prayed for this morning by an under shepherd, a pastor of this church, then come forward during this time that we might pray over you and minister to your soul. Let's sing and worship.